It's rough, though, isn't it? Uh, I like the way Nikki Wheeler, in her study notes she passed on to me, puts it. We're several months into the lockdowns and quarantines of the coronavirus pandemic. We are weeks away from one of the most contentious and divisive American presidential election cycles in memory. Civil unrest continues throughout the country, and deep divisions over politics are causing some churches to fracture. At every turn, there is sufficient reason to feel hopeless, inadequate, and even at times alone. It's been a rough year, and there's just a lot going on. Normal life is hard enough, right, with its ups and downs and health issues and the normal things we face in life, the stresses of life. But this year, it's much more intense. These are some words that I wrote down that were shared by different elders and pastors in our meetings this week. Emotionally and physically exhausted. Frayed emotions. Tired. Frustrated. Discouraged. Worn out, beat up. At least some of these words I think would fit almost everybody here in the room, I would think, this year. The youth today are especially struggling. Today, one in three teens will experience an anxiety disorder, according to the National Institutes of Health. The percentage of teens who experience at least a major depressive episode has increased rapidly, and now one out of every five girls reports experiencing symptoms. The suicide rate has gone up dramatically among adolescents. It's a tough time. But it's tough in our strong American mentality to share that sometimes, to be honest, even with ourselves, much less with other people, that we are struggling. Joanna, not her real name, came to me, and she was struggling with anxiety and depression and really hurting, but she also came with a deep amount of shame, feeling like something must be wrong with her. If she were a good Christian, if she just had enough faith, maybe she wouldn't be struggling so much. I like the way Matthew West puts it in his song, Truth Be Told. He says, lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them, never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. Truth be told... The truth is rarely told now. I say I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine. (laughs) But I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit when being honest is the only way to fix it. And there's false theologies out there, right? We, we feel them, we hear them kind of in the back of our minds that, gosh, if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't struggle. That's what I love about our passage today. 
because our passage today is one about Elijah who has just in the last chapter, Rod taught us so well last week about it, defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. He stopped the rain for three years and then started it again by faith in God, trusting him. Here's a mighty man of faith. And in our chapter today, he experiences an incredible downtime of depression that goes on for weeks and weeks. Elijah is one of the most godly, faith-filled men in all the scriptures, and yet he's a man who deeply struggled. And I think it's important for us to understand that that can be a normal part of the Christian life. That struggle is not that unusual. Nikki Wheeler again says this, that even Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the story of God, got afraid and ran away and felt despair. It shows that we aren't above reacting in this way. We shouldn't judge Elijah as if we know better or would do differently. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up when we experience similar dark nights of the soul. This is not only the human experience. This is part of the faith journey. King David, Jesus in the garden, Paul talks about despairing of life. And many saints throughout history, St. John of the Cross wrote a book, The Dark Night of the Soul. It's a normal part of many of our faith journeys. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers in England in the 1900s, talks about the incredible depths of depression that he experienced. So we learn from this passage that It's not unusual for saints to struggle emotionally. But we also learn from this passage how God responds. Does God get angry? Does God get frustrated with us? How does he respond? Or does he respond with incredible compassion? Well, let's pray and we'll dig into this passage together. Lord, thank you again for the reality of the scriptures, how it deals with real life and the ups and downs and the struggles of life. And thank you for Elijah's life, who James says is a man just like us in every way. Teach us, Lord, today about how to walk through those times in a healthy way, not just for ourselves, but for those around us that we love. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look through the symptoms of emotional pain first and then look at God's compassionate response. But I want to begin by just asking the question, why do you think Elijah gets so low? I mean, just last chapter, he had this incredible uptime and defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. What an incredible victory of faith. And yet here, all of a sudden, within a few days, is in the depths of despair. How could that happen? There's some hints that we could point to, but we don't know fully, but he's physically and emotionally exhausted. And often after an emotional high, we just crash. Our bodies crash. We're we're depleted physically. Rod and I have talked, and Josh too, for that matter, about preaching when we pour ourselves into a preaching on a Sunday, and then we're often just feel really low for a day or so. That's part of it, but he's gone so much deeper than that Elijah has. 
Maybe he's burned out. There's certainly a hint of frustration, even anger, that we'll look at in a moment, that he thought this would change the nation. Finally, things would work out. God, you're, you're going to heal the nation of Baalism and idolatry. And then right away, Jezebel is still evil, and Jezebel is still in control of the country. And he's depressed out of that. He's struggling with his own feelings. He's struggling with maybe even something like a bipolar disorder. We don't even know. But we know he's struggling. And let's not forget that this is a huge spiritual battle as well. God loves, Satan loves to attack the saints, especially when God's using them in a dramatic way. So we just don't know all that's going on, but he does, we do know, get fallen into a pit of despair. Sometimes we don't even know why we get discouraged, even depressed, or, or why someone else is that we love and care for. We don't understand what's behind it sometimes, but it can be helpful to look at Elijah's reactions his symptoms of his emotional pain, because that can help us understand what we're going through ourselves, but also what the people we love are going through as we begin to see these symptoms. And I encourage you to keep these in mind because they're a way to tell sometimes if you're depressed, you may not even be aware of it. The first symptom we see is fear. It says right away at the beginning, Jezebel says, hey, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. And he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. This is a common emotional response to life that, that can often get us down, fear. Now, if you think about it, in Elijah's situation, it seems pretty irrational. I mean, look at the power that God had just displayed through him. Why would he be afraid of this one woman? Yeah, she's queen, but I mean... Why is he so terrified? But he seems to be terrified. Why is he so terrified of one angry woman? Well, I think most men are probably terrified of an angry woman, but beside the point, um, (laughs) he has deep feelings of fear. He's afraid of the future. He's afraid of what might happen, and that's beginning to take over his thinking and his life, And, and that can happen to us. We can begin to be afraid of what's coming. You probably have experienced a certain amount of that sense of anxiety and dread about the future because the future is more up in the air for us than it ever has been, it seems, at least in my lifetime. You may experience panic attacks. You may experience just an overwhelming just sense of dread that you don't know where it's coming from. But fear is a common part of discouragement and depression. The second symptom we see in him is a desire to escape. Desire to escape. Notice what happens. He was afraid, rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. So he goes beyond the end of Israel. Let me show you a map that just gives you a sense of where he was going and how he was fleeing. Um, It'll come up. There we go. So this is the whole nation of Israel, and he starts 
all the way up here in Jezreel, in northern Israel, towards the top there, and then he works his way down to Beersheba, which is the very southern part of the nation of Judah. So he works his way all the way down to about as far as he can go. But then we'll see a little later in the passage, he actually keeps going. That's about 120 miles he goes. He runs as far as he can. But then he keeps going and goes another 250 miles into the wilderness all the way down to Mount Horeb or what is also called Mount Sinai. So he just wants to get out of there. (laughs) That desire to escape. As he says, he just wants to get away. He wants to die. He wants to avoid facing life. Do you know that feeling where life's hard and you're hurting and you just want to get out of there? And maybe you can flee physically. Maybe you've done that sometime where you just get away and you just want to be away from everybody else and everything. Or maybe you've just fled emotionally into the Internet or into just vegging on TV or into a hobby or whatever, but you essentially are just checking out of life for a while. When you're feeling down and depressed, that's so common in us that we just want to escape. And along with that is often suicidal thoughts. As he says in verse 4, he went a day's journey into the wilderness, sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. Now, technically, these aren't suicidal thoughts in the sense that Elijah isn't thinking of taking his own life. He asked God to do it for him. Um but he does want to die. He's tired of being alive. He doesn't have any hope. And so he just wants life to be over. Here's the ironic thing about this. Do you remember what happened to Elijah at the end of his life? He never died. (laughs) He got taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. And so God saying, you're praying to die. I'm not going to actually answer that ever. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) Elijah, but that sense of I'm hurting and I don't want to hurt anymore. And many of us have felt that way at times and just thought, I wish wish it was over because of the emotional pain we're feeling. Sometimes we even get to the place of beginning to think about how we would take our own life if we could, you know, knowing where where the pills are that I could OD on, knowing which corner I would accelerate on to go off the highway or into a tree or whatever. Those are awful times of sadness and feeling that we just want to escape. But let me just say, it's, it's not unusual when we're hurting. But if it ever goes a little further to that, where, where you actually, and some of you probably experienced this, where, where you've actually started planning to take your life, and maybe some of you have attempted it, but where you're beginning to make a plan and you know how to do it and you've got it figured out and you're kind of beginning to wait for the right time to do it, if you ever, if you're there now or if you ever get in that place, please don't take your life. Please, I've known a number of people who have committed suicide and it's not ever the right way to go. 
It leaves such devastation. Please don't do it. Please talk to somebody. Find a pastor, a counselor, a friend who can help you. Call 911. But please, please don't follow through on a plan. Fourth symptom I see in Elijah's life are feelings of low self-worth. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. I'm not better than my father's. Now, we don't know exactly what he's thinking there. If he's thinking, you know, I thought my life was going to be different. I'm really following you, Lord, unlike others in my past, my ancestors, and, and life isn't turning out the way I thought. Or maybe my ancestors were so messed up, and now I'm realizing I'm just as messed up as they are. But he's having this sense of low self-worth. Feelings of worthlessness. No one wants me. I have no real impact on my world. That's very common when you're down and discouraged. Number five, self-pity. Look at verses eight. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came to there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He goes 250 more miles down, and uh, if we have the pictures, I'd love to show the pictures of Mount Sinai. This is the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Some of us were there a year ago and hiked up to the top of it. Um, And he's going to the top of the mountain. The next picture is, as you can see, the little sign, maybe it's Elijah's Basin. This is a traditional site where they found a cave where he might have been in this rocky place. And he goes into this cave. And he's feeling bad, feeling sorry for himself. Notice the self-pity you hear. I've been so zealous for you, Lord. And look, nobody's following you. I'm the only one left. Do you hear the self-pity in that? And it's easy to begin to fall into that and become more and more self-centered when you're feeling bad, isn't it? You just get into this funk where you're just sad and feeling this, woe is me. And number six, you move on, and part of this is isolation. The sense of isolation where he ran away. He left his servant in Beersheba, and he's going totally by himself, goes for 40 days, wanders in the wilderness, eventually shows up in Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. But as he says, I, only I am left, the sense of complete isolation. Being alone, I'm the only one in the whole nation that cares about you. Now, Think with me for a minute. We know that's not true. Remember just last chapter, he met Aholiah, or Obadiah, I mean, the uh, prophet Obadiah, who was a godly man and trusted God and who hid a hundred prophets of Yahweh and saved their lives. So you know there's at least 101 out there, right? And he knows that. But he's totally forgotten that. His emotions have blinded him to reality. And so his feeling is, I'm the only one left. He's feeling isolated. He can't remember what's true. People who are in emotional pain often isolate themselves like he has here. And then they 
feel bad because they're so isolated. And yet they did that to themselves. But that's common when the emotions are hurting. And then it's hard to reach out to other people, isn't it? You, you just feel withdrawn and you just want to avoid. Number seven, what I see symptom is anger. In that statement that he says in verse 10, and then again in verse 14, you get this sense of, God, I've been zealous for you. And look how it's worked out for me. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't directly say it, but it's pretty evident. It's there that he's angry at life, angry at how it's worked out, and ultimately angry at God himself. Why am I hurting so much? Why has this turned out? Look how hard I've tried, and you haven't come through for me. Jezebel wants to kill me. Life's unfair. Life hasn't worked out the way I thought it would. That often happens. Deep down, there's anger at God and others because of our emotional pain when we're there. And then finally, being stuck in negative thinking. It's just so common when you're depressed that your thinking just isn't clear and you get stuck in this negative view of life. Notice what he says in verse 10. God comes to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What he says in verse 10, um, you know, I'm alone, etc. And then verse 11, so God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And before the Lord, behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, a whisper. It's hard to translate, but they're such a gentle sound. And that's where the Lord was. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question as in verse 9, right? But now Elijah has seen a theophany, a, a vision of God, the storm and all that. But God wasn't in that, but God was causing it. And then God shows up in this whisper. So God asks the same question. And then you get verse 14 which is absolutely word for word the same as verse 10. Elijah's seen God, but he is still in the same place. Woe is me. I'm hurting. Life's unfair. I'm angry. All those things are wrapped up. And he says the same things. Nothing's changed for him. And that often happens when we're down. We might be exposed to God and even confronted with God, but we're stuck in negative thinking. We can't seem to get out of it. And an e even a confrontation with God doesn't seem to help Elijah. See, Elijah is in a bad spot, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's, his feelings, he's hurting, he's feeling down, etc. His thinking is not right. And his choices haven't been good. He's been fleeing and running from God and getting as far away from Israel as he could. So... The question is, how does God view Elijah when he's in this messed up place? How does God respond to him? How can we help ourselves as we look at how God responds and how can we help one another in our times when we're stuck in depression and emotional pain like this? I, I love the way God responds here. 
It's beautiful. I want to look at seven responses of God, his compassionate responses. Number one, as we saw in verses five through eight, that David read, God, first of all, meets Elijah's basic physical needs. He doesn't even deal with the emotional stuff. <laughs> he, he goes immediately to, he lets him sleep, and then he feeds him. He takes care of those basic physical needs. Sometimes when we're emotionally upset, we forget to take care of ourselves, to get the sleep we need, to get the food we need, to make sure all those basic things are done, that we take a shower, that we you know, do what we need to do. You see, you can't deal with heart issues and the emotional issues unless the physical things are taken care of. We're, we're a unity. We're body, soul, and spirit all in one, and, and, and they're unified. And what happens to our body impacts our souls and our spirits, our emotions. So what this means is you've got to take care of the physical, and sometimes that means you need to be on medication because often depression is a physical response in your brain. There may be times you need to go. And now, I understand our world, we're, we're over-medicated. We feel like in our society that any little emotional pain or down, feeling down at all, even at the loss of a loved one's, that we shouldn't feel that, and so we need something to make us feel better. Well, yeah, we over-medicate, I understand that. But there are definite times where where maybe you can't sleep, maybe you are, you feel depressed for a long time and you just can't seem to get out of it, you, you need to be on medication because you've lost the serotonin in your brain and you need supplements to be able to get healthy again, and that's okay. That's not a lack of faith. That's doing what you need to to get in a place where you can get back to trusting God. And I love this one verse, verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise and eat. Back in chapter 17, Elijah, during the drought, was hungry, and so God sent ravens to feed him. Well, now in his time of emotional need, what does God do? He sends an angel and and the word in Hebrew is that he was continually touching him. The angel shows up and has his hand on him. In a, I just picture this gentle, caring touch. You see, that's a physical need, right? When someone's hurting, often they feel isolated, and sometimes touch is so important. Now, I realize we got COVID going on. <laughs> touch is hard, but sometimes maybe we need to, okay, keep your mask on but give somebody a hug. Turn your face away, whatever. But maybe they're really hurting and they just need some physical touch or find somebody who can give them a hug or whatever because I love the tenderness of God here to care for Elijah even at that level. Twice he touches them, both in verse 5 and verse 7. Secondly, what God does is he asks questions, both Verse 9 and verse 13, the same question. Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? I think it's tempting when we see somebody struggling and, and having wrong thinking and whatever. We just, you know, want to 
tell them what's what. We, we tell, want to tell them what they need to do. We want to give them advice, mainly because we feel uncomfortable ourselves and we don't know what to do. And so we try to give them advice because we don't like seeing them hurting. I understand that feeling. But, but I love what God does here. He just asks him a question to get him beginning to think about what's going on in his own life. And then next, step three, what we see God do as compassionate response is that he listens. He asks the questions, but then he really listens. And he listens non-judgmentally. And he lets Elijah talk about, you know, and reveal all the mess of where he is and his thinking and how he's believing lies and all that. But he just listens to him and then listens again. This is probably over a period, a number of weeks that Elijah's going through this whole thing and he doesn't correct his bad thinking. He just listens and listens again. It's so important sometimes to just be okay with being patient and sitting with someone, asking questions when they're hurting and just let them get out what they're feeling and what they're thinking so that then they can begin to deal with it. Number four, what we see God do is he treats him gently. Um, again, sending the angel, but uh, I, I really like the way he shows up on the mountain to him, right? God was not in the wind that was breaking the rocks. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire, but in this gentle, tender whisper that showed Elijah that, it's okay to come out of the cave. You can come into my presence. I'm here with you. Sometimes we want to challenge people. You know, we just get tired of them struggling. And come on, buck up. Get over it. Get on with life. That's not what God does. And it's not what we should do either. He's kind and gentle and patient and loving. Number five, what we see in God's response is he then, now after all this time of listening, etc., quite a period of time, he finally encourages Elijah to engage his will. Let me read verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God says, oh, <clears throat> okay, Elijah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin the journey back. I want you to head north 400 miles, all the way to Damascus, way up in the north. And when you go all the way up north, I've got some things for you to do. So you need to engage your will and start moving. I have some important things for you still to do. Your purpose in life is not over. You see, sometimes when our minds and emotions are stuck, we, we just can't even make the next good choice and we end up just 
vegging, not taking care of ourselves, not doing what we need to do. And sometimes it's hard for us. And we just need to be encouraged to engage our will to do the next right thing. When I went through my master's in biblical counseling training, I remember our professor at one point, Dan Allender, said, sometimes the most godly thing you can do is floss your teeth. Now, I know some of you out there are going, uh, I never floss my teeth. <laughs> but his point was sometimes you just got to do the next thing. Brush your teeth, take a shower, get out of bed, do what you need to do to begin to engage your will because often that is the way to begin overcoming the discouragement and the depression is by beginning to make choices to do what's right and perhaps even to serve somebody else. So God gives Elijah three important tasks to do. What's interesting, and I, I don't know why this is, but Elijah actually only does one of them. He anoints Elisha at the end of this chapter, but he doesn't anoint Haziel and Yehu, and other people take care of that. And, but I don't know why, but at least he gets him moving. And that can be a way to encourage people, just do the next right thing. And then after a time, again, after weeks, after listening, number six, he gently corrects his wrong thinking. He gently corrects his wrong thinking. Notice verse 18. He says, oh, by the way, <laughs> I just want to remind you as you're going north back to Israel, I reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not alone I've still got my people. I'm still working. <laughs> and that can be so important to begin to point people back to truth, back to what's real, back to how God is working in his life. And then finally, and I think this is a critical one, is that God makes sure Elijah is not alone. He makes sure he is not alone. Verses 19 through 21 so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him, took the pair of oxen, sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh and with the implements of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. And notice the last sentence of the chapter. Then he, Elisha, arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. That's the literal translation. He ministered to him. God made sure Elijah wasn't alone. He gave him Elisha to stay with him and minister to him to the re for the rest of his life life. You see, isolation keeps a person stuck, but when you get in community and you have a network to support you, then you can begin coming out of it and begin to find health again as you're rubbing shoulders with others. If you're, if you're down, if you're depressed, when people come to me and they're in that state of despair, the first thing I look to is what are their physical needs? Are they taking care of themselves physically? Do they need to go to a doctor and see about medication, etc.? But the second thing I always do 
is say, what's your network? Who knows what you're going through? Who are you talking to? Who, who's a friend, a family member? And do you have a Bible study that's supporting you and praying for you? In other words, you've got to create a network of support. You can't get too isolated because that's where Satan has access to you. But in community, God can begin to work through the others around you and get you out of being so stuck. This whole pandemic for the last nine months has not been easy for me personally. I've experienced times of anxiety and struggle and difficulty, and fortunately I have friends I can share that with. But this summer I found myself stuck with some anxiety that was keeping me from sleeping well, and it was just a tough time I was going through. And so I went to a Christian counselor several times, and I found it very, very helpful to me. It wasn't the first time I'd seen a Christian counselor, by the way. But I found it very, very helpful to me to be in community, to help my thinking be changed, and it was, it was good. And I just want to encourage you, don't be afraid of that. When you get down, to make sure you're in community and you're sharing with friends who can pray with you. But there's times, if you need to see a Christian counselor, we can recommend one to you, but please don't isolate yourself. We all need one another. Depression, anxiety, emotional pain are not sins, brothers and sisters. They are not sins. They're part of life in a fallen world, and often they're part of our faith journey that God is working through. So let's stop judging one another and withdrawing from hurting people because they make us feel inadequate or uncomfortable. If you or someone you know is stuck in a, in a, in a place where it's, they're struggling emotionally, it's important that we learn to be like God, to be compassionate, caring, gentle, listening for ourselves. Let's be compassionate on ourselves when we're hurting, but also on those around us to bring the compassion and the kindness and the patience of God so that God can work in a gentle way in drawing us and the other person deeper into his love and care. And again, I want to say again, if you are struggling, please talk to somebody. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a friend. We can recommend a Christian counselor for you, but don't flee to the desert. Don't run away into the wilderness where you're vulnerable and it's just going to get worse. Please, please be willing to get help. Let's pray. Lord, uh, the story of Elijah is just so real. I want to thank you for putting his story, this chapter, in the scriptures. So that we can know this is, this is just part of the faith journey. This is part of the struggle of living in a fallen world. And that, and that you care and are compassionate, Lord. May we turn to you at those times, but also turn to others who can help support us. So that we can get through those times in a way that causes us to draw closer to you rather than withdrawing from you and from others. Thank you for your compassionate, healing, loving hand. May we learn to find it in those times. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.